good when not everything is good. And what is not good has consequences. I mean, there are a lot of things that are not good. They're just bad. They're evil. I mean, the death of a child is not good. Cancer, drug addiction, war, blasphemy, you could just go on and on. So it's like, how does God like work it all for the good? Not all is good. We make decisions. Decisions have consequences. I mean, like how does he work in this to reverse it or to redeem it? And here's the thing that we have to understand. It's a God thing, actually. It's not dependent on us. I mean, think of it this way. Like if you have a cake, like we're going to have a cake in a little bit, right? And it has individual ingredients. On their own, they don't taste good at all. But when they're mixed together, something beautiful can come forth from it. And the ingredients in our lives are like divine influences. We have the Father at work. We have the Son at work. We have the Holy Spirit at work all in our life. We have the most powerful influences, and they're, they're persons, by the way. I'm not saying God is a power, that are at work in our life. Can I hear a big amen to that? And it's like they're in the mix of our life. So when you let God work all the ingredients together, God can take the bitter, put in the batter, and make you better, right? Because he's God. And, and what we see in Romans 8.28 here, as I mentioned, just think of like this major beautiful jewel, as I mentioned, like this billion carat jewel. And it's supported, it's like it's supported by a setting. So I'm just kind of thinking of a, of a ring, just big monster jewel, but the jewel of course is Romans 8.28, but it's supported by a setting that, that brings out that it's true, that, that we can count on it. Like look at verse 29. This is the setting, for whom he foreknew, God knows everything. God knows everything. Tomorrow was yesterday to God. He also predestined, actually means pre-planned or purpose. This does not mean that God made humans puppets without legitimate choice, which makes God a charade, actually. No, he's talking about he had a plan in his heart, the Heavenly Father did, in Christ that there would be redemption, that there would be a healing, that, that he would reverse the forces of evil and sin and breakdown, and that the objective is to be conformed to the image of his son. So thank God that the Lord is overriding influences that are greater than even my own choices that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Now it's getting personal because we all, as believers, know a time in which the Lord reached out to us, revealed himself to us, and by the grace of God, we had opportunity to respond to him. Can I hear another amen to that, right? So he called us, and it's like I'm thinking, praying for my dad. I believe the Lord's going to call him. It's like... And he's going to respond. And then we respond. He justified us. Which means he declared us righteous based upon what Christ accomplished on the cross. He paid it all for us. It's like salvation is a gift. We're saved by grace through faith. When that takes place, we're declared righteous, which is just so amazing. Off the charts. 
And whom he justified, he also glorified. Also glorified. Yeah, it's like past tense. It's as good as done. Guaranteed future. It's like we're pre-cooked, if you will. God sees the cake already done. We're in Christ. We're glorified. And what then shall we say to these things? It's like, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the point is, we have it on the screen, is we know all things work together for the good because God's purposes and plan have the momentum actually from eternity past and will never be stopped. He foreknew it. He predestined us to be in Christ. He justified us. We're glorified. And we could just go on and on and on and on with regard to the evidences that we know this to be true. Like... I just remember a few years ago, I was in Jerusalem. I had this honor to teach at a Bible college. And it was at a turning point, actually, that led for us to be here as pastoring in San Marcos. There's a total connection to it. But we were at a time in our lives where we were just seeking the Lord, believing the Lord, when it's to call, actually to, to, to plan a, a new church. We were thinking Brooklyn and San Francisco. But it was an intense time. I just was. There's big choices that had to be made. It was just intense. Like, we've all been intense times before, right? It's just, believe me. I was, and I was actually at the upper hill of Jerusalem, just probably like 40 yards from the site of the Passover and Pentecost. And, um, and I was just praying and seeking God and just thinking about all things work together for the good. And I just had the most overwhelming experience. I was just, it's so hard to put into words. How many of you have ever seen the Lord of the Rings? You know that, you've seen the, like the, the one on the return of the king, right? And, and where you have Frodo and Sam, they're on the edge of Mount Doom. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's a few, okay, there's a few of you. And then the eagles come down and just pick them up and swoop them away. It's a really powerful, it's a really powerful scene. And I, I just, to be frank with you, it's hard, so hard to put in words, but man, I felt like I had an experience like that. And it was so monumental, like literally, like in prayer. I don't want to overstate it, so personal, you know, the Lord speaks to us, but just in prayer, it's like, you know what, Greg, I think an eagle's wings, you give me your attention and I'm going to swoop you up and I'm going to renew your strength to my glory. He works all things out for the good and he certainly has in our life in this way. This is the crown jewel. And the reality is, the Lord wants us to know it, not only be informed by it, but transformed by it. And we, we, can, we can unpack it, and we will, in its immediate context. But it's also shown in the broader context of Scripture. So turn with me, please, and let's just get a little running start. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Crown jewel of scripture, all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How do we know it's true? We have this unfolding plan for eternity past to eternity future. And let's just check out here. I mean, like the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. If you look in chapter 1, verse 11, Mark chapter 1, verse 11. It says, then a voice came from heaven, 
And let's read this together, you guys. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Whoa. I mean, this is right after. I mean, Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan, kind of a Jewish ritual purification, which, by the way, we're going to have baptisms here on the 16th. And that is, that is so important to one's confession in Jesus Christ. I think it's the purest way to confess Christ publicly. And uh, maybe you were baptized as a kid. I was. But I came to faith when I was on the eve of my 16th birthday. And I, I'll never forget being baptized. And, um, and with my friends watching, it was actually in a public place. But I would really encourage you to step into it. Our Lord was baptized not because he had sinned. It was actually a foreshadowing of his ultimate baptism in Jerusalem. It was almost prophetic. And that he'd give his life, he'd be buried, and he would resurrect from the dead. But you have, after this baptism, our Father who makes this statement, you are my son, in context here, he's identifying Jesus as the Davidic king, promised king. It's like... Like this son here, is this a created son? No, it's the only begotten son. Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's like at his baptism, the father speaks, this is my beloved son. Look, in context, not only in Israel, of course, now we're talking to the Davidic king, but in the broader context of the Roman Empire, I mean, now, now you have a clash. Because when Jesus was born, actually the emperor was Augustus, who actually claimed to be the son of God, that he was the king. But no, 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 no. The true and living God is revealing himself. Are you guys tracking with me on this? And it's like, and then verse 15, check with me. Jesus declared, well, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's like, well, the gospel means good news. I mean, what's being said here? Well, Jesus was calling for radical change, repent means to change the way you think. The most important reality is particularly who Jesus is. That has a profound impact. And everybody would listen to it, The profound impact on your worldview. Like, wait. I mean, the Son, God came down. The Son has been revealed. The Davidic King in human form. Repent. Change the way you think. Repent, believe the good news. The good news is Jesus is the king. That, that, that's the good news. And it's like, now you talk about a fundamental impact. Like he would give his life on the cross, of course, and resurrect and ascend. That too is the gospel. But at the core, you're talking about God himself bringing a new world order, his kingdom 
to planet Earth through the cross, through the resurrection. The king of this kingdom has come to make all things new. So, look, I, I want you to go over just real quick to Romans chapter 1, just to remind you of this, right? I mean, this is how Paul began Romans. I mean, and you talk about some chutzpah, because he's actually writing to the upper center of the imperial cult of Rome. And, 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 and he and actually presents Jesus as the king, right? As the son of God, the son of David, who would establish the kingdom forever, establish something that will never break down. So he says in verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of, can someone tell me, David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Whoa. Now this is such an important perspective, not only, of course, that we understand it in its context, but in our context too in America, because what many people may not know is the fathers of the American constitution actually borrowed a line from the great poet Virgil, the Roman poet, who was, was actually used by Augustus to market, to market that he was the son of God. Now we're going back thousands of years that there had been a turning point in the Roman Empire. And Virgil, in his poem, Novus Ordo, spoke of a new order of the ages. And it was used to promote the age under Augustus. And some of, some of our founding fathers actually made the striking claim that history turned a vital corner. Not, not with Augustus Caesar, not even with the Lord Jesus, but with the birth of the Constitution of the United States to usher in a new world order. Now here's the thing, for 250 years, our country, of course, has been a beacon of hope and help and healing to immigrants throughout the world. As U2 frontman Bono, gotta get a little U2 in here. How many of you know Bono I'm talking about here? Let me, let me see, you know, seriously, how many of you know what I'm talking about, Bono? Okay. Okay, that makes me feel a whole lot better. Good job. All right. I mean, he said America's the best idea the world has ever come up with, right? It's an idea bound up in justice and equality for all. So it's like, yeah, great country. Okay, here, but there's a point here. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, in our initial break from the tyranny of King George in England, of England, have we taken life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness too far? And now what we're seeing in our country is a breakaway from the king himself, which is very dangerous. Because we talked about it. We can be free, but not necessarily free. Like we can abuse our freedoms. And I'm just talking general, general here. I'm not saying you're abusing. I'm just saying our country can go outside of original design, outside of law that protects us and blesses us. W would you not agree with that, right? In a lot of ways, of course, that's why we have major breakdown today. And, and I'd like you to turn to Psalm 2, because church family, like, you know, th this is a psalm that's going to come more and more in focus. I'm just absolutely convinced of it, and we should all know it well. Because Psalm 2 
is identifying the king and, and the Lord Jesus, right? Gives us such important perspective here. It's like Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing, which is like self-defeating, empty, no cumulative value. It's like making bad decisions. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the, what's the next word? Lord. And against his, what's the next word? Anointed, Mashiach, Christ. Against the king, the ultimate anointed one. Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. Hebrew scholars interpret bonds and cords as a yoke that speaks of ownership. The idea is the act is to break off the yoke of ownership, in essence saying God is not our creator. It's like the ideas today in the forces is like, no, wait a second, there is no transcendent, uncreated one. It's, you know, we have atheism on steroids. We talk about this all the time. And it's like, no, you don't, you're not our creator. You don't own us. We don't want that oak. And the alternative is self becomes the new sovereign. And freedom of choice without limits becomes the new sacred. That's what we're seeing. And it results in law that, that results in legalizing our own self-destruction. The U.S. Supreme Court reflected this when they wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess so. But the reality is, I mean, what that speaks of, I mean, we're, now we're taking freedom to, you know, to, to, we're abusing freedom to the extent like, well, you know, God has his view of life and original design. But to be frank with you, what freedom is, is that I'm going to make up my own rules and, and as I go. It's, it's an offense against him. And it goes down to verse 5, and, and, and it says, look, he shall speak to them in his wrath. It's like, what does that even mean? Well, let me, just, let me just say this. Like, In other words, God's a communicator. And one way that God communicates is like, you make good choices and uh, they have good consequences. Make godly choices, they have good consequences to the glory of God. But if you make poor choices outside of original design, they have poor, they have poor consequences. Are you with me on that? And in that way, God speaks. He just he communicates to us. That, that there are consequences to poor decisions that are ungodly and that, that are defiant and injustice and hurt you. And that way, that's what wrath is. Wrath is the consequence of sin. And the accumulative godless choices and actions kind of snowballing that will culminate one day in the day of wrath when Jesus returns and he will bring judgment. But God speaks in his wrath, and he's clearly speaking today because what's being revealed is this, this madness that, that we're seeing in culture. We're seeing like this intellectual, moral intoxication and madness in our world. Like Eric in his new book, we'll have him here tomorrow, obviously, he said, everyone in the womb knows that a rooster cannot lay an egg and that a man cannot have a womb. 
and cannot menstruate and, and give birth or lactate or be a mother, but who will say it? Who will help lead the way through the carnage of ideological warfare? Who will hold up the battle standards, which is Jesus himself, so that others can see and follow? And the thing is, we're seeing this madness in real time. That's the test. It's like we, we would say, oh, you know what, like I would stand up, and this is like Eric's message, I believe we would here at Rise, you know, you know God help us. But it's like, hey, you know, we see Jews being persecuted, we're going to stand up. Can I hear another big amen to that? Yeah, oh no, slave trade, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, the rubber meets the road in the moment. Generally, humanities on channel one or three, which is either have their head in the past or they have their head with some projection of the future, the challenge is, is being in the moment. Man, I'm so glad for John MacArthur. Just sends a great letter to our governor and says, look, California's epidemics of crime and homelessness and sexual perversions and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem from an affront to... God, creator, and the son, the king, and, and basically says, look, this, this is like, it's multifaceted, but one of the reasons he, he's saying this, he's speaking to our governor, this is happening, is because of your policies. I mean, it's like, not only... That's okay. No, I know. Listen, it happens. You never know about tech. God bless you. It's okay. No, no, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> But not only that, and I mentioned this last week, our governor compounds the wickedness in quoting from, from Jesus himself. And I mentioned this last week. He compounds the wickedness to justify sanctuary state for abortion, claiming right application of scripture. And it's just like in doing that, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Say it like it is. Say it like it is. It's true. And just go back to Romans 8. And, and the reason, look, I mean, the, we're, the church is a conscience of the state, right? If you go back to Romans 8, just want to show you this. And we, we're, we're just going to be hovering over this passage for quite some time. I mean, look, it tells us all of creation. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the reveal, the redemption of our bodies, for we were saved in this hope. The point is, he's just saying, look, all of creation is actually, well, has a deep dislocation because of sin, there's a groaning, we're experiencing it. The answer is Jesus Christ to bring the course correction and healing. How do we know that all things are working out for the good? Here's point number two, and that is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells us. So again, you have these overriding influences. The Lord himself is in us. And I want to draw your attention to verse 11. Go back to verse 11 real quick where he tells us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. My goodness gracious, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and dwells us? So it's like you talk about a powerful overriding influences to break down or poor decisions that I've made. I'm in Christ, I'm justified, and I'm in the process of being actually transformed. And just think of it, you guys, resurrection. Oh, what does it tell us? The resurrection of Jesus, for one, tells us that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God the Son. I remember as a freshman in college, one of my psychology professors was just mocking Jesus. I was, sh I was shocked. Have you ever like been in a place where you just, you feel your face just getting real red? And you're like, I can't even believe this is happening. But it was like, I just was shocked. And he was mocking Jesus. Jesus said he's way the truth of life. I mean, obviously he said he was delusional. That's what he was saying. He's delusional. It'd be like someone saying there's a green monster outside from Mars or something, you know, outside. It's like, come on. I just, I was, uh, so anyways, I raised my hand and said, hey, listen, Jesus not only claimed radical things, but he backed it up. He backed it up by his own resurrection. The guy was just looking at me like this. It's true. Yeah. By the way, the story gets better. I'm like 58 now. That was a long time ago. So I just, no, I'm just kidding. No, this is true. So I said, hey, he said radically, but he backed it up. I mean, if someone said there's a green monster outside, we'd all think, oh, yeah, delusional. But if you open the door and there's a green monster, then he's, he's not delusional. He's a prophet, right? So... Anyways, Jesus not only claimed radical things, he backed it up. Look, verse 5. Verse 5 is well and alive today. The Lord, oh, actually, excuse me, I got, nope, I'm going back in my notes instead of forward. To the resurrection is a demonstration that Jesus is creating all things new in himself, right? In addition, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead if you look at verse 26 and verse 27, tells us that the Spirit actually intercedes for us when we are under radical duress. Thank God for that. And for the Spirit that we've received, and this is important to hone in on, I'm going to read it, which is verse 15 um, of Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Note, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and if indeed we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified together. A lot there. Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells us. The spirit that indwells us is actually praying for us, interceding when we're like overwhelmed. Thank God for that. Um, in addition to that, this is a spirit of sonship. So in other words, we have absolute confidence of his unconditional love and favor in our life. This is not a spirit that is kind of based on a performance treadmill, that I sweat out some good works, then I have the confidence that I have his love. No, no, no. This is like 
a spirit that results in Abba Father. I'm a son, you know, a daughter of the king, right? Like, if I asked you, do you have extra confidence in your life of God's favor when you're doing good, feeling good, and looking good? You're thinking, let me say it again. Like, you know, if you're, you know, we all sometimes feel just fantastic and we're doing pretty good. And I don't know, we're, we're, we're wearing something we feel good, or look good, rather. I mean, when you're feeling good, doing good, and looking good, you have this extra confidence of, oh, man, you know what? Then, you know, God is good. And God's going to be good in my life. If that is the case, that's a performance-based identity. That's, a, that's kind of a slave mentality because your sense of well-being is based upon your performance. Whether you feel good, whether you're doing good, whether you are looking good, if you will. The good news is the basis of our relationship with God is not based upon what we have done, but what Christ has done for us, right? And there are times that we're going to be tempted to be disillusioned with this, with this extraordinary love in our life, and even disillusioned by how God loves us. And let me tell you why. There's two main reasons. One is because of what's happening inside of us, because we can be in turmoil, uh, because life can pile up on us. And sometimes because of how we're feeling or what's going inside, the storms inside, um, we can wonder, man, does God really love me? Because of what's happening inside. Look at verse 33. Who can charge anything against God's elect? There's nothing you can do that can bring you back to condemnation. Our sins are forgiven, we're justified, we're secure in Christ. Can I hear another amen to that, right? But sometimes what throws us off is what's going on inside. The other reason why we can get thrown off sometimes or a little disillusion is by what's happening on the outside of our lives. And we're wondering, does God care is God aware? Has he abandoned me? And so if you pick it up here in verse 35, I mean, what, actually, no, excuse me, let's go to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him shall uh, freely give us all things who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It's, it's God who justifies. Who is the one who, who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of the sword? I mean, like, right? These external realities, and as is written, for the sake we are killed all day long, we are encountered as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, height, depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love it. So the point is, is that look, hey, God's, God's love is not abstract. It's not just an idea. God's love is relational. God's love is provisional. God's love is always redemptive. God's love is eternal. God's love actually never fails in our life. And, and then the ultimate question is, and we're going to end with this, is that how do we know? There's so much more to this text, and we'll get to it, but how do we know that is all true? Well, we've mentioned, you know, from eternity past to eternity future, a lot of momentum going on. But you guys, you know what? We just need to consider our precious Lord Jesus. He's identified as the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher of our faith. And just have this point up on the screen, point number four, and that is when we look to Jesus, you know what he does? He confirms that although he despised the circumstances of the cross, and we too can despise our circumstances, he trusted the Father to work it all for the good, in fact, for the greatest good. So, Jesus is ahead of us. We have our eyes on him. He is working in our life. We look at his life and we see, oh my goodness gracious, is it not true? God works all things out for the good. In fact, the highest good. Just look at Jesus, who hung blood and gave his life on the cross, was treated as if he committed every sinking sin in human history, was buried, resurrected, ascended and is coming again so that same spirit that raised jesus from the dead is in each one of us you don't have to like your circumstances but we have the most wonderful father who's working it all out for the good to his highest good in our life making us more like jesus christ and he's coming again and speaking of the son you know what's interesting is you go to the temple mount today which is essentially where the temple was, of course, 2,000 years ago. There's a dome of the rock there. Now it's an Islamic shrine. But I've never been in it. Pastor Chuck Smith is my pastor. When we go to Israel, he, he, I was on the Temple Mount with him, and, he, and uh, I remember him saying, well, I've never been in there, and I'm not going to go in there. So I've actually never been in the dome of the rock. But I know that there's a saying there. And it is God has no son. God has no son. Well, it's interesting because when Jesus returns, he's coming back to Jerusalem. And the demonstration that God has a son and the son is the king is going to be very apparent, right? Nothing is going to stop it. So it would probably be good if they just removed that saying from the Temple Mount there, the Dome of the Rock, as soon as possible. Right? That would be a good thing. So let's, let's pray, Lord, you are beautiful and we love you. And thank you that we're your sons and daughters. And thank you that once you've begun a good work in our life, you will complete it. And Lord, thank you. We'll all look back in our lives some of us very bitter seasons, and yet we have seen your incredible grace. Lord, you're the one who resurrects the dead. 
And uh, thank you, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, you, you've said in your word right here, this promise is for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I say that just in an attitude of prayer because I want to give an invitation to anyone here that would like to step into this. Wouldn't it be wonderful you'd leave here, have the assurance that you're right standing with the one who made you? Not just a created, a creation of Almighty God, but a son, a daughter of the King? Um, because Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So the Lord's knocking in the door, I believe, of individuals here, just by the size of the group. And he wants to come in. Jesus said he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone would hear his voice open the door, he will come in and have relationship. And that's the gift. It's having relationship with God in Christ, forgiven of your sins. And listen, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Okay, death, death to dreams, death to inner life. And it's either like, hey, we embrace what Christ accomplished for us. Jesus died for us. He was judged. He was treated as if he committed every single thinking sin in human history. Or the Bible says, if we don't embrace Christ, his forgiveness, then we're going to pay the debt of our sin forever. All right, we will experience judgment. God is a moral governor. He's perfectly just. He must judge. So the question is, how does a perfectly just God make unjust men just? The answer is, he came and paid the debt of our sin and bore our judgment upon himself. Um, so, look, we're talking life and death here. And Jesus said he set before us, uh, you know, a broad way and a narrow way. And he said, many go the broad way, and there's a few be that find that narrow way. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. And Jesus gave his life on the cross could be said with one hand he reached up he took the hand of the father with the other he's extending it to you and he wants to bring you in right relationship but listen we, you know we all have a choice here the bible says he set before us life and death blessings and cursings choose life it's like you know he's not going to force himself hell was created for the devil and his angels in origin and those who refuse the Lord, it's like, is there a hell? Of course there's a hell. But that's not God's purpose for you. That's not his desire. And yet he's not going to force himself on you. He gives us a choice. You say, well, what does that look like? Jesus said, unless we repent, we'll perish. Repentance means I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn to God, receive his forgiveness, and I'm going to follow Christ. You say, Greg, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have the strength. None of us have the strength in ourselves. But the Bible says to those who believe in him, he gave the power to be his sons and daughters. So he died for you. He resurrected. He's now given us a choice. He's given you a choice. And the Bible says those who call upon the Lord 
shall be saved. He really is just a prayer away. When I say that, it's not, it's not, he says, it sounds so like, I don't know, cheap or something, like say a few words. Oh, no, 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 listen, uh, it's a confession. It, a confession that involves like, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. But if you would like to settle that, and that's your heart, that's where you're at, you're sincere, then he's going to see that and honor that. And he's going to reward that because he's true to his promises. So if you'd like to receive Christ, I just would like to lead you in a word of prayer. And I have the confidence if you mean it from your heart, the Lord will see it because it's a prayer of confession and belief and course correction. So pray this prayer with me if you would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me and paying the debt of my sin, resurrecting from the dead. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Today I turn to you as my Lord and Savior. Lord, come into my life and fill me with the life of God and teach me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life. And thank you for making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.